Well, hello everyone and welcome to another podcast. My name is Trent and I'm joined here with Mitchell. And today, um, Mitchell's just going to share a bit about um, his story with us. So, last time we had Alma's story and this time you're going to be hearing from Mitchell. And I'm really excited about this. I think this is going to be a really good podcast. Now, before we get started into the story, I just want to make our disclaimer that we are not one of those awful, 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 horrible groups that is advocating for the sexual rights of kids or anything like that. We are Christians. We hold to a biblical worldview that sex is for a one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. But, you know, in spite of that, there are people who do struggle and this struggle is a very, very difficult struggle. It's so visceral. Um, it's so secretive. And so the reason why we created this ministry is to just help out people who really don't know what to do with their um, unwanted and involuntary attractions to minors. Yet, in spite of this, God is he's just, man, he's just so good. I mean, he's saved me. You can listen to my story on our website, and he's saved Mitchell as well. So, Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to. Now, you're standing in court. You've pleaded guilty to the charges that have come up. And you're wondering what the sentence is going to be. Maybe jail time. But then something changes. And what does the judge say? And what led up to that? Things turned out better than I and my family were expecting in that situation. I did not wind up spending a bunch of time in, in prison, which is what we had kind of expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so how, how did, how, what, what sort of led up to that? A whole lot led up to that. I could tell you a bit about myself. From the outside, I would seem like a pretty normal Christian guy. Grew up in a pretty normal Christian home, Christian family. Went to church on Sundays I'm a pretty introverted person. I was homeschooled K through 12 grade, which for me was a really good experience. It really inspired a lot of creativity in me, and yeah, that was just a good experience. Well, that certainly sounds very different to the experience of a lot of people. Um, true, so, true. Yeah, so just so you know, so so people like myself, like I grew up in a very chaotic and unorganized home. My mom uh, was an alcoholic and my dad was into boys. So yeah, there was a lot of emotional, psychological abuse, a lot of yelling and screaming. But you said Mm -hmm. your family was really good, like you are homeschooled and it just seemed like like a normal, ideal kind of family. Yeah, and which I think really goes to show that um, the experience of attraction to minors, it can really come out of nowhere, and there's not really a good way of predicting where it's going to come from or anything like that, which is a lot of why, you know, this ministry exists. Yeah, which which is, is kind of frightening in a way, because, you know, we're always trying to find the pattern of of, of, of things that happen, you know, this person turned out this way because of that thing that happened to them, but, but sometimes mm-hmm. sin just sort of comes out of nowhere just because the sin exists within us, yeah? Yeah, it's it's in our fallen nature, unfortunately. 
Now, yeah. something happened to you when you were 13. Would you like to talk about what happened? Yeah. Well, leading up to that, like from the outside, my life would appear pretty normal and idyllic, especially from someone growing up in the Christian church. The one different thing that I was experiencing that I didn't realize was kind of abnormal is that I started having specifically erotic and sexual desires and crushes, really, on other kids, starting at an unusually young age, like around the age of uh, seven or so, very definitely before the onset of puberty. And to this day, I really have no idea why that happened that way. Nothing else out of my childhood was especially problematic or unordinary. I was never abused or I never went through any traumatic experiences as a child. But yeah. When, when you hit that age of puberty, that's when the hormones started to sort of accelerate things and, and make it worse, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, when I hit puberty, um, the hormones really started kicking in. Yeah, as they do. But I think mm. the experience for me was a little bit different, perhaps, uh, because I'd already been experiencing early sexual desires, and that really amplified that quite a bit. Mm. And unfortunately, when I was 13, I experimented with my younger brother. I sexually abused him when I was 13. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a physically violent or coercive experience, and I honestly really had no idea what I was doing, except that I felt drawn to that. But, you know, even if something isn't physically coercive or rough or harmful in that manner, it's still, it's still abusive and psychologically harmful, and it, it definitely was for him, even though at the time neither of us realized it. And so shortly after that happened, uh, my brother told my parents what had happened, but he was too young to really be able to describe it very well. And so they asked me about it, but because of how he described it and how young he was, I was able to lie about it, and that's what I did. I twisted what had happened and made it sound like an innocent mistake. Mm which, looking back, was a pretty terrible thing to do and led to a lot of problems for me. I can imagine. But at the same time, it's like you you were so young, but you still knew that it was wrong, and you knew that lying about it was also the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, oh man, it, in some ways, it's like my heart goes out to you in that sense because, like, when you're when you're like twelve, thirteen, it's like you don't know nothing about the world, and it's 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 such a vulnerable time for you and for your brother, just being so young. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's it's just like a tragedy all all around, really. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. And um, I take it that coming from that kind of a family, did your parents ever t talk to you about sex or what was appropriate, what was not? Unfortunately, they did not. I didn't realize it until quite a bit later in life, like during my early 20s even. But my parents were definitely oversheltering. They never talked to me about sex or sexual arousal, um, pornography, anything like that. So it's kind of like yeah. you're just flying blind without 
knowing where to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and I can't entirely blame and criticize them for that. Uh, my dad didn't have a very good childhood either, and his dad essentially left him to figure things out on his own, not just mm. in terms of sexuality, but just life in general. And this is really part of the tragedy of sin is that it's all our fault. Like, we yeah. can't just pin the blame on one person and say, oh, if it weren't for these people, then everything would be, you know, wonderful, glorious, and good. It's, it's, we're all in this horrible churning mess together. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, you said that your, your struggle got more intense mm-hmm. um, in your later teen years, around 17, 18. So, could you tell us a bit more about what was going on at this time? Yeah. I considered myself a Christian throughout all that time. I had um, I had decided I wanted to have a relationship with God um, when I was 12 at a summer camp. And so I, I'm very blessed by that. Even still, I didn't really have much of a relationship with God. I didn't really understand what that was about, even though I had been going to church my whole life with my family. But around the age of 17, 18... Um, I started to discover pornography, mm-hmm. and luckily for me, even though my parents didn't talk to me about what that was at all, uh, they did do a very good job of keeping it out of the house and preventing any means by which I might access it. Uh, so I didn't mm-hmm. even start to discover it until a later age than is unfortunately normal these days. Uh, yeah, I think I was... I was the same in that sense. It was only until I was in my early to mid-20s that I started to realize what porn really was and what was actually out there. Like, I had an idea of what it was like in my mind, but mm-hmm. it was just so different to what it was like in real life. And um, tragically, um, I continued to abuse my brother several different times over the course of um, between 13 and 18 which I'm very much regretful of now. What do you do with this regret? Well, in back in when I was 18, I started I was really starting to better understand what was going on and I was realizing that I couldn't let things go on the way they were and I was realizing that if I didn't do something to stop all this, that my life would be going down a very dark and evil path. I didn't really know what to do, but I was intending to volunteer at a summer camp um, that I had been going to for years. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a really good experience. And I decided that I would talk to one of the other volunteers at this summer camp and confess to him my struggles with pornography Mm -hmm. that I had recently, that had recently started becoming more of a real problem and addiction. So I did that, and that was actually the first real good healing experience from all of that situation. Um, Mm -hmm. He was very understanding, and he didn't condemn me or criticize me, but um, helped me take the first steps in knowing what to do with that. It was very supportive. And through that experience, I decided to open up to a few other friends about um, pornography use and also disclosed that I was 
experiencing unwanted same-sex attraction, which also was another thing that my parents had never really talked to me about. I knew what it was, and I held then and hold now a traditional Christian understanding of sexual morality in that regard, and that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. But as for me personally, I didn't really have any awareness of what to do with that. And there was a huge amount of shame connected with that as well. Yeah, and I can imagine that just opening up about that stuff mm. was just such a big step yes. with all the emotions that come along with that. And at the same time, you know, you'd, you'd been raised in a very uh, conservative sheltered family and if you come from that kind of family it's like the one thing that you don't do is you don't talk about all the stuff that's inside like that mm -hmm. so um man what wh what was going through your mind as you were you know sharing your experiences opening up to this to this guy on the camp a lot of stuff really i was terrified i kind of thought i was really the only person in my circle who is dealing with that kind of thing. But it was also very um, healing from the shame. This friend that I opened up to was very, very understanding, very compassionate. And he talked to me about his own struggles with uh, pornography use as well. And mm. as I've learned since then, and that was kind of the start of the experience of learning, that the best way of dealing with shame is to face it head on and to just talk about the things that that we're ashamed of, that would say, that would tell us that we're bad people. Yeah, so, yeah that I, was a I really healing totally experience. Agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I opened up with my with, with my old pastor about what was going on for me internally, and I just remember just I, I just cried like a baby. Like it was just so overwhelming. There was so much emotion there. It was like I, I couldn't believe it was happening, but. At the same time, it was a good thing that I was finally able to share this, that I didn't have to keep this part of my life so secret and so hidden away. Uh, so, yeah, man, it's like the heaviest thing that you can go through, I think, opening up for the first time. Yeah, um, it's yeah. kind of funny. I remember the very first time I told a group of friends that I was experiencing homosexual desires biggest voice crack in history <laughs> we'll, we'll just say that <laughs> what you mean like literally figuratively eh, it, it probably wasn't really literally the biggest but i was incredibly nervous and when i first tried to tried to speak it was it was a uh, very <laughs> unmasculine squeak <laughs> yeah. Oh, you poor thing! <laughs> oh well, but I I pushed through it and got it over with, and was pleasantly surprised at how understanding people were. Yeah, that was that was hard for me to open up as, as well about my SSA, and I think mm -hmm. I, I opened up to some friends before. Um, this is this is even before I opened up to my pastor about my underage attraction, but opening up about my uh, same-sex attraction with some friends was also very freeing and very liberating. Like, uh, no one judged me. No one made any queer jokes or anything like that. Um, yeah, same for me. Yeah, yeah and I think um, 
I think once once you give people a chance, although I have to say this very very carefully, generally they'll be understanding if you have a good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Starting out so. now. Um, so I went through that whole experience. Um, started opening up to friends and my parents, telling them about uh, my struggles with pornography use and trying to figure out what to do with um, same-sex attractions. And I should note as well that I'm also attracted to women, so I don't call myself bisexual, but that's essentially what my experience is like. But over the next couple of months after that, that was a really healing experience, a good time, though it didn't Mm. feel like a good time sometimes. Yeah, I knew there was one more thing I needed to talk about, so I called up another friend that that I hadn't talked to in a while and told him the one thing that I'd been keeping back, which was the abuse of my brother. Now, you said that, so you're opening up to all these people, it's becoming healing and wholesome, mm-hmm. but then you open up to a mandatory reporter. Yeah. What happened with that? Yeah. And the thing is, I didn't actually know that the guy was a mandatory reporter when I talked to him. So that was a very um, unpleasant surprise. Because what happened was he, after I got off the phone with him, having talked to him about the one thing that I was keeping back from everyone else, having abused my brother, he attempted to contact me again right after that, but I unfortunately had to leave the house at that time, and so didn't hear back from him until later that he was a mandatory reporter and unfortunately had to file a police report because of what I told him. So that was a very unpleasant bombshell for me to hear. Now you said that the next day, the sheriff's deputy and a social worker show up at your front door. What yeah. was that like? That was terrifying, and one of the worst days of my life, really. I had no idea what to expect, and really, I hadn't even realized that what I was doing was specifically illegal. That might seem kind of crazy, but I was in a lot of denial at the time. I didn't want to think about what was happening. I just kind of compartmentalized all that really separated out those two parts of my life. Partly because of how sheltered I was, I had just never put two and two together in that way. Um, Now, I take it the social worker and the sheriff's deputy spoke to your mom and dad? Yeah, they talked to my parents, they talked to me some, just trying to figure out what was going on. And so, what happened after that? Yeah, well, I called up a uh, trusted friend and told him what was going on just a very quick summary, and told him that really I just wanted to kill myself because I was so overwhelmed and didn't didn't know what to do. I thought thought it was the end of the road, really. This was the worst thing possible that I could have imagined happening. Yeah. But I was honest with my parents. I was honest with the police officer. And how did your parents react? They were pretty shocked and surprised, but... By the grace of God, they are pretty genuine people, and they do love me and my brother, and they're not the the hypocritical type of type of person who only 
who only wears their faith on the outside. You know, they actually lived it out, and they were very gracious to me that day, and were very understanding, and though they were very shocked and surprised and hurt, they did not abandon me. They wanted to move forward and find healing for both me and my brother. So yeah, I was really um, blessed by that. I'm really fortunate in that experience. So you said before that because of the situation within your family, you had to move in with your grandparents with some restrictions, but then after three weeks, you were allowed to move back. Yeah. And you were still living at home as the investigation was sort of happening. Yeah. What was the outcome of that? Yeah. um, The investigation fairly quickly concluded that I wasn't an immediate threat to my brother or, or anyone else. And so they allowed me to move back home three weeks after the initial police report, which was very, very good for me. And I helped, I think it helped my family stay together and not be emotionally torn apart by the whole situation, which was the goal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, obviously, um, the other side of that coin was keeping my brother safe, making sure that nothing more happened to him. That was also a significant concern for my parents, but they were able to find a way of balancing everything. So a few months after that, after the investigation was concluded, I was charged with the specific crime. I was charged with having abused my brother and was arrested as, as that goes which was a pretty difficult experience. I spent three weeks in county jail before getting out on bail. What was that like? It was um, it was pretty rough, really. Jail is not a nice place to be. It was very difficult going from a healthy family environment to being completely separated from everyone and everything that I knew and not really knowing when I would be getting out or what would happen to me. I don't really do well with isolation, so that was pretty rough. I just wanted to ask, how did your faith deal with this kind of trial? Not very well, honestly. Um, I was very consistently feeling tempted by suicide. I felt very hopeless, and I didn't see any way that my life could be redeemed. I felt incredibly guilty and ashamed of how much I had hurt my brother. I had had basically a crash course in realizing how much I had hurt him. And it seemed like, sometimes it seemed like the best thing that I could do was just leave, leave the world permanently and make sure I never did anything to hurt anyone again. So it's like, as you're there by yourself, the impact of what you've done is starting to, I guess, awaken itself in your mind. You're starting to realize... Yeah. That this is this? Mm-hmm. It was a pretty difficult experience, um, but I managed to just barely hang on to trust in God and hope that he could bring things together with the support of my family and friends. I managed to get through that time. And, you know, I'm I'm really grateful that the Lord kept you through that time. Yeah, and me too, looking back. Yeah, I mean... I was suicidal for quite a while, and I wasn't even in jail. I can't imagine how I would have dealt with it if I was also convicted and um, 
shut up like that. But yeah, yeah the the Lord is good. Just just hearing your story is really encouraging to me because you know it, it shows me that the God is is able to preserve and protect the ones that He loves. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that the trial took around eight months. Yeah. So you spent three weeks in jail, but then you got out on bail, mm-hmm. and then for the rest of those months you're at home. But then you get convicted. Yeah. But then you. I was yeah. I was staying with a um, different family member um, during that time. I wasn't allowed to go home or um, have any contact with my brother. Oh. Uh-huh. So yeah, now, the, the trial took about this... eight months, and yep. at the end of that, I was offered a plea deal. That's that's basically a thing here in America. I'm not sure if other countries have a similar legal setup, but that basically means that. I was offered a reduced charges and a reduced sentence if I agreed to not contest the charges, which would draw out the legal process. So um, you pled guilty? Yes, I pled guilty to what I was charged with, and I expected, me and my family expected that I would be sentenced to maybe two or three years of prison, plus some additional time on probation. And probation is basically a a reduced sentence, so time on probation is kind of like the court saying, well, you deserve X amount of time in prison, but because of your cooperation and other factors in your favor, we're going to let you off easy. But remember, this time is what you deserve to be in prison for. But yeah, I was I was expecting that it would be like two or three years in prison. But on the day of sentencing, the judge uh, reduced it to just sixty months probation without any further time incarcerated, which I was pretty surprised about. But also, I had been praying that that would that something like that might happen, and my family had been talking to the court as well advocating for me, which I was very, very lucky and fortunate and blessed by. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of families wouldn't really do that, and I certainly did from a purely justice perspective. I did deserve to spend time in prison. You know, what I did was illegal and wrong and harmful. We have justice on one hand, and we can have mercy on the other. Those two things it's it's not good for either one of those things to be holy without the other. And in my particular case, the judge decided to be merciful. And due to my cooperation and my brother's expressed desire that that I not be incarcerated, yeah, things turned out differently than I had been expecting. It's always quite strange. I think sometimes traveling through life is like traveling down a river. Mm-hmm. And you're never quite sure which way the river is going to turn, this way or that. But it keeps on going. Yeah, that's just one thing I realized about my life when when everything in my life fell apart. Life just kept on going and I just kept on doing one day at a time. Yeah. Now, you've already spoken about what it was like for you in jail. But then after that, you started probation therapy. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? So as I was saying, I wound up being um, sentenced to 60 months probation. 
So I was allowed to continue living with that family member that I mentioned before. I was required to attend a therapy program specifically for people that are convicted of sexual offenses. That was a challenging, but also some, in some ways, healing experience. I definitely needed um, therapy. There was a lot of stuff in my mind and in my heart that I needed to work through. A lot of stuff that I hadn't understood about how damaging sexual abuse is. And so the therapy was, in some respects, it was good, but also some parts of it were actually pretty harmful. So at first I was in a therapy program for about a year and a half, and that program was fairly good. There were some minor things that I disagreed with or or were not very helpful for me, but most of those were not all that important, really. But I, during that time, I learned a whole lot about exercising self-control and how to act morally, really, and how much how much harm sexual abuse causes. And I learned about a lot of stuff about my past and kind of looking back over my life and seeing what choices and decisions led from one thing to another and how I got started down some pretty unhealthy paths. So in some ways, it's good that you were able to realize all of this stuff and just the extent of brokenness. Yes, yes. We sometimes don't realize about ourselves, yeah. But then you said that there were some parts about the therapy that weren't good. Would you like to talk about this for a bit? Yeah. So yeah, after about a year and a half on probation, there was, I had a miscommunication with my uh, probation officer. And because of that miscommunication, he thought that I would be better in a different program that he knew of. And so he switched me to that other program. But as it turned out, he didn't actually... He had been misinformed about that program, and it was actually a pretty unhealthy program. It was run using some very outdated methods, and the therapist that was in charge of that, he didn't really understand why some people... He didn't really understand why some people go down that road of choosing to abuse, and how to bring people back to a healthy a healthy mindset, healthy understanding of right and wrong and social interactions and stuff like that. You said earlier on that it was actually quite abusive. You're saying things like it was shame and punishment based. Yeah, so one of the one of the things that this therapist believed was that that sexual abuse was entirely just a learned behavior and that thus it could be unlearned and all desires to do those kinds of things could be unlearned. Um, But the only way he knew how to do that was through something called aversion therapy, which is a, the way he used it, it was a very harmful and downright abusive form of sexual reparative therapy, and that kind of thing has been around for a long time, unfortunately. And he believed that being very dominant on his part was the best way to train his clients, myself and the other people that were in his program, because of having sexually offended. And so the the main technique that he used 
was to basically have his clients write down a very detailed, erotic, essentially pornographic account of um, the offense that they had committed, that they had been convicted of, and then to think about that and intentionally become aroused to it, and then immediately in that state of arousal inhale ammonia fumes into a person's nasal cavity in order to create a very immediate painful feeling sensation which ammonia will do if you inhale it that's so bad like i I still feel bad just hearing this and feel bad for you feel bad for everyone else and anyone else who's caught up in this because what they're essentially getting you to do is they're forcing you to do something that already makes you feel incredibly uncomfortable incredibly personal and then they're punishing you for it Mm -hmm. in the hopes that your brain will restructure reset change the way that you think about kids yeah and there is there is a little bit of anecdotal evidence that this can be some people can find it helpful but it's as far as i know it's not actually very many people who have found it helpful and it's very much a case-by-case basis i guess there are some people that can find it helpful for um, training themselves to be less deliberately aroused by um, pornographic or specifically pedophilic desires but again it's entirely a case-by-case basis and it certainly wasn't my experience at all that it worked that way yeah i mean just from the get-go there's no empathy there's no connection between you and the therapist there's no trust it's just this bizarre set of activities yeah and yeah yeah this guy was coming to the table coming to the whole process from a very overtly anti-biblical perspective that was several years ago now and having done some research since then i've realized that a lot of a lot of his beliefs about how that worked um came from some very inaccurate anti-biblical ideas about psychological development that were popularized a long time ago by some not so good psychologists and such yeah like you can look back through the history of psychology and find places where people really went off the rails and some of that was where he was getting his ideas from unfortunately yeah i mean it sounds like it came straight out of the 1920s mm-hmm. <sighs> and so this this therapy this didn't actually help you with your mental health it actually armed your mental health yeah um, quite a bit yeah, yeah so the well, i was in that program for about six months and the last three months of that i was deteriorating quickly in terms of mental health i was thinking about suicide every day yeah it was a very unhealthy situation fortunately about six months after i started that the whole program shut down to this day i really don't know exactly why it shut down or any of the details involved with that it was admittedly from my perspective a little bit mysterious and seemed underhanded it seemed like something had gone wrong that the clients 
myself included, never got the details of. But that's entirely just my own subjective perception of what was going on. I don't really know what happened there, except that, oh. uh, yeah, after that six months, um, the clients in that program were all transferred to another program. And fortunately, they had a much better grasp of reality. I'll put it that strongly. Yeah. And things things improved quite a bit, though my mental health was still damaged. I was still emotionally scarred from that experience, though I didn't it took me a long time to really grasp how much. But for the time being, at least, that was about two years into my time on probation. And so I spent the next three years in this third therapy program. And that was quite a bit better than the second one had been. Not quite as good as the first one. I just didn't wind up meshing with the therapists there that I worked with as well. Yeah. But overall, it was a better experience. Yeah, and thank goodness for that, just because being stuck in such a bad, destructive therapy program, yeah, I'm I'm just glad that they didn't keep you there, that that abusive practice did get shut down. Yeah. And you're transferred over to someone who, yeah, they could have done better in certain areas, but at least it wasn't as bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So fast forward another three years or so, three and a half years, I, I learned a lot through that um, that third therapy program, and I was getting towards the end of my time on probation, and things things were going pretty good at that point. But yeah, uh, towards the end of my time on probation, through talking with my therapist and her communication with my brother's therapist and communication with my family, I was able to start rebuilding a relationship with my brother. I had not been allowed to have any contact with him during the first few years on probation, which was very difficult, difficult for both of us, for both me and my brother and really my whole family. I wasn't allowed to have contact with him. I wasn't allowed to go to church. I wasn't allowed to have contact with anyone under the age of 18. But we were able to start rebuilding our relationship, which was pretty uh, difficult at first for both of us, but mm. ultimately that has been a healing experience, and it's what we both wanted to happen. Yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate and blessed that my brother and my family as well have been very gracious and forgiving, and that they still want me to be part of the family, and they still love me, and really it's it's by the grace of God that healing has happened. And towards the end of my time on probation, one of the therapists I was working with at that time was still somewhat concerned about um, my ongoing attraction to minors. You know, throughout the whole time in therapy, um, that had never gone away. And I don't really know why exactly, but it was never addressed specifically either. Not as much as looking back, I realize it ought to have been. So she decided that it would be beneficial for me to do a slightly modified, toned-down version of the aversion therapy that I had done before, the one that had been so destructive, which I actually was not comfortable with, but I didn't realize that I had any option or say in the matter, because part of my 
probation requirements was that I had to comply with whatever my probation officer and therapist decided was in my best interest, within the bounds of law, obviously, but she had decided that, that I should try this aversion therapy again in a toned-down manner that she thought would be less harmful and hopefully not harmful at all, but still help me reduce my um, attraction to kids. And unfortunately, it didn't actually work. It's partially because of um, just how traumatized I had been by the first time I did it. it. made my attractions a lot more intense. So, so it didn't really work? No. But they, but they still felt like there was work to be done, so they sent you to this thing. It didn't really work. Did it kind of just fizzle out in the end? More like it, it went out with a bang, really. Oh. Yeah. So I, I tried doing that, um, the modified version of aversion therapy. Tried doing it the way that my therapist suggested that I should. And at first, it didn't seem to be having much of an effect, albeit I didn't like it. It wasn't beneficial, and it was causing quite a bit of emotional distress still. Mm, so yeah. I asked her if I could stop doing it, and she agreed. But after I stopped, things continued to snowball, and my mental health continued to rapidly decline. I started experiencing severe depression and even um, psychotic symptoms, which was extremely scary. I'd never experienced that before. And this was, I think, partially because of the trauma that had already been caused by the first time I did aversion therapy, and partly because, in spite of it being modified, I still had to write down an erotic fictional story of how I might commit an act of child sexual abuse in the future. And oh. it was it was entirely fictional. And that was why my therapist didn't think that it was going to be harmful, because it wasn't based on something I'd already done. But unfortunately, it did wind up being harmful in a similar way. And I started feeling extremely depressed and anxious and as I was saying, started experiencing psychotic symptoms, which if, if you look that up, it was, it was pretty disturbing. I was hearing other voices in my head. It was essentially hallucinations. It didn't quite get to the point of being full-on hallucinations, like seeing other things and hearing other things around me. It didn't quite get to that point, but it was very close. I couldn't stop thinking about this, this fictional story of uh, child sexual abuse that I had written, and I started imagining that, that that was my future and that I was doomed to re-offend, and that there was nothing I could do to stop it short from killing myself. Oh, really? Yeah, which, saying it, it, it sounds like a completely absurd thing to just believe, but that's kind of, unfortunately, how psychosis works. It, it messes with a person's ability to understand reality and to remember things properly. Wow. Yeah, it was a really disturbing experience. and Yeah, that, that just sounds really difficult. Yeah, and I've learned since then that doing the aversion therapy 
specifically opened me up to to spiritual attack. So I think that that's mm-hmm. where some of that came from. So how did you get out of this mindset? So I got out of it through a few different things. I was praying a lot, just trying to ground my thoughts and my emotions in in Jesus and my relationship with him and what the Bible says. Uh, my parents and family were praying for me extensively as well throughout that time. God led me to go back through all of the things that I had experienced and consciously reject all of the unbiblical message I had heard about myself throughout that time. You know, like that I was that I was a monster or that that I was doomed to reoffend or that I couldn't control myself or that I was a bad person because of these things I had done or that I would never be able to stop being obsessively aroused by children all sorts of things that were just lies that, from Satan that I had heard and allowed myself to believe over the years was so, there a sense of hope that you were able to hold on to yeah yeah a little bit it was very difficult to hold on to hope yeah. but but by the grace of god really uh throughout that time um psalm 91 was especially helpful and that mm-hmm. talks about how God God saves those who rely on him. And he will not allow them to be crushed and defeated. And so I really held on to those promises during that time. Yeah. And another well, thing that was helpful was consciously forgiving myself, both for having abused my brother. I hadn't really forgiven myself for that up to that point. But during that time of experiencing severe depression and psychosis during the times where i could think more clearly i did make peace and forgive myself for having done that and for the ways that i had compromised my own health and morals during the time that i was on probation through um agreeing to the um aversion therapy and agreeing to what i didn't realize at the time was essentially creating and reading written child pornography. They didn't call it that, but that's effectively what it was. And at some level, I realized that even at the time, and I knew that what I was doing was wrong. But because of how much power the therapists had over me, I didn't know how to choose not to do that and reject it. Yeah. I mean, when you're in that position, and when they've got that kind of power, I mean, it's like, what can you do? Like, say no, throw it in their face and walk out? Like, you can't do that. No, I couldn't. And if <sighs> yeah. if I had tried to do that, my probation officer would have been within his legal rights to ask a judge to revoke my probation and reinstate the six years of prison that, oh, no. that, that the probation was in place of. Oh, so so you really had no choice. My goodness. Yeah, it was it was pretty rough, but you know, God got me through it, and yeah, and I've forgiven those therapists. You know, they they aren't Christians, and they did honestly think that they were doing a good thing. They were doing the best they could with with what they knew. And so I can't yeah. entirely just blame them for that. You know, we're all we're all sinful people. I'm I'm no less 
of a sinner than they are. Yeah. Well, that's, you know what, first of all, hats off to you for doing that, because that's, that's a really tough thing yeah. to Granted, it wasn't forgive. easy, and <laughs> it's, it's yeah. still hard not to hold on to bitterness about all that, but... Yeah. But you know that's that's what the grace of God does. That's that's the power that He has. Really, He can change hearts. Yeah, and and it certainly sounds like God's been working in your life by mm -hmm. preserving you in that situation and also yeah. growing you after that. Mm -hmm. So, my question I want to ask is: How would you describe the space where you're in now compared to the space that you were in back then? Um, I'm doing a lot better, really. I have a much better relationship with God than I had before. Um, I've been off of probation for about three years now. I've been healing a lot since then, um, growing, partly healing from the experiences I had on probation, partly healing from things even before probation, and just the times that I had abused my brother or done other harmful things. You know, that's still an ongoing process, but it's a lot better now. That's I have so a relationship pretty. with my brother and with my parents and my other siblings. It's not where I would like it to be, ideally, but it's good. Yeah, um, it's one of those things where I don't think anyone is really where they want to be. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I know I'm not where I want to be at the moment. There's still more work that God needs to do in my life. But I'm so glad that I'm not where I used to be, because like you, I was in a really, really bad place. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm I'm doing better now. I've been, for the past couple of years, I've been seeing a very good and understanding and competent therapist, actually the same one that, that I was first working with when I was on probation. Uh -huh. So that's been a really good experience. Hmm. And, Good. you know, I still I still experience sexual attraction to children as well as adults. I, I don't really think that's something that I'm ever going to completely stop experiencing. And it's still tough to deal with both the, the immediate carnal draw of that and also the social stigma as well. But it doesn't dominate my life, and I know who I am apart from that. So good. Lastly, is there anything that you want to say to someone who might be listening, who's currently struggling with unwanted attractions, maybe feeling overwhelmed with shame, maybe not knowing where to go? What would you say to these people? Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot that I would like to say. It's kind of difficult to sum it up in just a few sentences, but Attraction to kids, you know, pedophilia, it's something some people deal with, but it's not a dominating experience. It isn't my identity, and it isn't anyone else's, really. You know, society sees pedophilia and all that as a terrible thing, the worst thing that someone could experience or, or do if they were to act out on those desires. But it isn't... It isn't our identity. Our identity is humans made in God's image, and we are loved by God, no matter what we experience or, or no matter what we've done. 
I'd say that that's the thing to hold on to and not what society says. And even if, even if you've already abused a child or done other illegal things, you know, it's, it's important to recognize and admit that that's wrong and harmful and there may be painful consequences to that, even long lasting ones. But that doesn't have to be the end of any person's story. God is amazing at redeeming people. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Ezekiel 18. It describes how much God longs to save people from the things that they do wrong and for them to turn back to him. And he longs to be merciful and kind. You know, pedophilia hasn't ruined my life, even though I did act on it. I still have a job. I can build relationships. I have friendships. I have a family. I can pursue hobbies. And really, my life is pretty normal in most regards. I think that so sums it up pretty well. Yeah, good. So there's, there's hope for everyone out there who struggles. Even if you've crossed the line, even if you've crossed several lines, there is a way that God can redeem a broken life. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And we, we certainly praise God for that, and we give him thanks, and that's why he really does deserve all of our heart and all of our worship because of all the good things that, that he's done for us. Yes. Well, thank you so much for chatting, Mitchell. Yeah, glad to. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast um, and maybe you've been convicted, maybe you need to reach out for some support, you can head over to our website, christianpedophile.com, and you can follow the links and send us an email. There may be a delay in getting back to you with the email, but we will get back to you. All right, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all on the next one. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.